0: Well, good morning. morning. You all hear me well? So I'm not Pastor Caleb. As Jonathan said, Pastor Caleb is in Lindbrook Baptist today preaching. But funny enough, we are wearing the same shirt, so that means something, I guess. Uh, It's it's such a privilege to be back here. Uh, I've been gone. Maybe some of you didn't notice, uh, but me and Henry, we were actually gone. We took a trip down the East Coast, uh, kind of uh, driving and camping all the way down, almost to Miami, to Fort Lauderdale. So, uh, yeah, we were just doing that. It was a great time of rest, great time of fellowship. Uh, We were in Charleston and Fredericksburg and Savannah. We were kind of following the Civil War path and looking at museums over there because we're Civil War nerds. Um, But that was a great time of rest. But it's such a a blessing to be back um, with the congregation today, with my church today. It's such a blessing Uh, Please turn in your Bibles. I encourage you, uh, if you don't have a Bible, to take one from the seat in front of you uh, and follow along in our passage today. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to verse 7. So we have a lot to cover. We don't have much time, so I'm going to dive right into the reading, and then I'll open up in a word of prayer. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 7. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let us pray. Uh, Dear Father, uh, thank you uh, for this beautiful day that you have blessed us with in your kindness. Uh, Father, I pray your blessing over this message. Uh, Guide me as I preach it, Lord, and I pray, Lord, may I preach it in love, Father, Uh, because as we will see, Lord, if I deliver this message, um, and I deliver it in the most excellent way that I can, but I don't have love, Lord, it, it avails me nothing, and it comes to nothing. And so, Lord, I pray that through this message, your people be edified, that they be built up in love for one another. And, Lord, that uh, you be glorified in this, that we may see how you love perfectly, Lord, even when we ourselves do not. So do that this day, Lord, through this message. And I pray in confidence, knowing that you hear and are eager to answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the passage that we uh, approach this morning, it's one that I'm sure most of you uh, are familiar with. It's a uh, passage from Paul, and it's this great passage on love, and it's a passage that I commonly uh, find spoken at weddings. I'm sure many of you maybe had this spoken, these verses spoken at your wedding. Uh, And though these verses are often found and spoken during wedding ceremonies, the context in which these verses are written in actually has nothing to do with marriage. It's not written within the context of marriage, but rather it is written within the context of the church, of the body of Christ. And so just for some context sake, uh, we find these verses in the book of first Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is an epistle written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to the church found in the ancient city of Corinth, hence the name First Corinthians. And the, the church in Corinth was a church founded by Paul uh, back in the book of Acts, uh, and it, uh, it was a church, uh, unfortunately, that the scriptures often present as one of the most troubled churches amongst those of the first century. It was a church that had, between the time of uh, its founding to the writing of this letter, uh, fallen into disorderly worship. It had fallen into uh, theological confusion and ungodly division. It was a church, as Paul presents it, whose ultimate problem was a lack of love, and it was this lack of love from which the other problems in Corinth were birthed, which Paul refers to earlier in this letter. The Corinthian church was a selfless, I'm sorry, selfish church, and ultimately it was a loveless church. It was a church in which division and even lawsuits among believers were common and prevalent. And so this letter was written by Paul in order to address these things. And as he does address these things, um, his, his language throughout most of the letters is very linear. It's very, uh, it, it's just direct argumentation, rebuke. But when we come to this 13th chapter, it's, it's nearly poetic in his, and uh, Paul is in his writing. And because of that, it makes these verses some of the most beautiful in the entire New Testament. But as beautiful as these verses are, they are also some of the most challenging verses in the entire New Testament. Not challenging in the sense that these verses are difficult to understand. They're not. Not at all. But challenging in that these verses, they act as a mirror for each and every one of us. These verses act as a mirror that we must, upon reading them, look into and realize the truth of just how loving, unloving we truly are. But it's my hope that through what is written here today, three things will come about. Firstly, is that it's going to bring to light any ways that we within our congregation have failed to love each other, as we are called. A second is that we will see how we as a church, by the empowerment of the Spirit of God, can love each other better. And finally, is that we will see the perfection of Christ's love, that though we often fail to love in so many ways, Christ never does. And thank God he never does. And so I'd like to break this message up into two parts, really simple. Part one is the superiority of love, and part two is love in action. So without further ado, let's jump right into the first point. Let's look at the superiority of love. Look at verses 1 to 3. Let's read them one more time. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Speaking about love, the first thing that Paul does is talk about the superiority of love. That's to say that love is better. Specifically, in this case, that love is better than spiritual love gifts. In the previous chapter, that's chapter 12, Paul labored to speak about spiritual gifts. Now, I just want to make clear, this is not a sermon uh, on spiritual gifts. Uh, So, exactly what these gifts are uh, is not important right now. That's not the point. Uh, But what you do have to know is simply this, that the Lord, he does give his people spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians received spiritual gifts, according to Paul. However, though they received gifts, there seemed to be confusion surrounding the subject of spiritual gifts, which Paul, he sought to clarify in the previous chapter. Spiritual gifts, as Paul states, if you go back in uh, chapter 12, verse 7, they are meant for the, as Paul says, the common good of the whole body. And what is that body? That body is the church. He's using a metaphor comparing the church to a physical body. Gifts, they're not designed to operate in arrogant self-elevation, Paul previously stated, but they're designed to operate in humble love. One member ought to use their gifts to serve alongside other members for the betterment of the entire body, of the entire assembly. And using that metaphor of the body, just like a a physical body member, physical body part, uh, let's say like a hand, works alongside another body member, let's say your eye, hand-eye coordination, so too we who are spiritual members of Christ ought to work alongside one another for the common good of the church. That is the purpose of spiritual gifts. And so from this, Paul dives into what has been his underlying message all along. And that is love. From the beginning of his letter, love has been the undertone. Gifts are good, Paul says. Chapter 12, verse 31, Paul says, in concluding chapter 12, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Gifts are good, says Paul. But now within that very same verse, verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Gifts are good, but there's a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? That way is love. You can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't love, it comes to nothing. You can have great gifts and as we see as we're going to see, you can do great works, but if it is all void of love, then its sum is a whopping zero. Wow. Now, as pithy and as powerful as these statements may be to us, I believe they must have uh, hit like an absolute sledgehammer to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, they didn't lack gifts. We already stated that. Chapter 1, verse 7, the beginning of his letter, Paul says that they were not lacking any gifts. Lack of gifts was not their problem. A lack of love was their problem. The reason there was jealousy, the reason there was strife, The reason there was division among them was ultimately because they lacked love. The reason there were lawsuits, the reason there was dissension was because they had not love. Had they had love for one another, this wouldn't be the case. But alas, they didn't have love. And all these things came forth from that absence. Now, he starts... His argument in verse 1, by using the gifts of tongues as an example. Again, this is not a sermon on spiritual gifts. Just know this, that at this time, the Lord did grant some within the Corinthian church the ability to speak in foreign languages. That's what the gift of tongues is. The ability to speak in a foreign language previously unknown by the one speaking them. An example of this in the scriptures that's very well known is in the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples began speaking in foreign tongues and foreigners were able to understand them. And many in Corinth, they had this gift. And Paul says, using hypothetical and using hyperbole, he says, look at verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men... And let's say that I can even speak in the tongues of angels, but have not love. I am nothing. So what does Paul mean by, by saying that? What, 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 is, what does that mean? What, what are these tongues of angels that Paul's speaking of? Is he saying that he and possibly others can speak in angelic languages Well, no, I don't believe so. He's not affirming that there is such a thing as the tongues of angels, but he's simply presenting a hypothetical. It's a hyperbole. He's saying that if he could speak in the greatest possible tongue that the mind can conceive of, it would amount to nothing apart from love. Angels, they're often thought of as being uh, these Uh, beings that are superior to mankind and so uh, logically if they had a language that they spoke it would naturally be considered higher and loftier than any human language could possibly ever be now nobody speaks in this tongue there is probably no such thing He's just using it to make a point. And the point is that great giftedness, apart from great love, is valueless. Paul is saying that even if he were more gifted than anyone else regarding this gift, the gift of tongues, but he didn't love, he would be nothing. Nothing. Now, while Paul, though he primarily speaks of the gifts of tongues here, I believe that eloquent and articulate speech can also be included in this. You know, so often we are people that are enamored, uh, infatuated by those who are particularly gifted in the area of speech, and I believe that in the church, this is most often true with how we view teachers and how we view pastors. We, We get in our head mistakenly, we conflate the idea that The holiest men, the ones who must love the most, are the ones that can preach the best sermons. The ones that can articulate better than the rest. But that's just false. That's not true. You could be very gifted in speaking and teaching the word of God and you could spend hours preparing a message and then deliver that message with ethereal clarity. But if you do not do so out of love for your God and love for your God, therefore love for his people, the people of God, then that beautiful speech is nothing more than, as Paul says, a noisy symbol. Now before I move on, I'd just like to make one thing clear, that I'm in no way in saying that, saying this with the elders and the leaders of our church in mind. Uh, You are in a church with elders who do what they do out of love and not in spite of love. And praise God for that. No, all I'm saying is that it's a very poor thing to judge a man when he is standing on the pulpit. Because when he gets down from it, he may be a loveless fool. You see, I know of Our elders love, I know Pastor Caleb's and Steve's and Mike's love for me and and love for this congregation, not because of what they say when they stand behind this podium, but because of the patience and the kindness and the long suffering they demonstrate when they step down from it. They use their gifts, being filled with love, not being void of it. We have to be thankful for God for that. But unfortunately, the same cannot be said of many churches who they choose leaders among themselves who, who speak so well but love so little. Great gifts, great tongues, great speech outside of the context of love is just noise. Paul says it's comparable to a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we don't have a gong at this church, Maybe somebody who has a gong can help us out with that. We don't have a gong, but what we do have are symbols. In fact, we have many symbols, and, and Luke has been doing a fine job using them uh, for the purpose of worship all this morning. And within the context of music, you know what? They're operating in their appropriate place, and they're pleasing to listen to, aren't they? But if I were to walk on over there right now, and I were to smash a symbol, as hard as I possibly can, I'm not going to do that, don't worry, though maybe I should do that to wake some of you up. I'm not, but if I were, it would be quite an unpleasant noise, right? Well, this is exactly what gifts and even great gifts, in this case, the gifts of tongues are like when they're not operating within the context of love, just like a crashing cymbal removed from the context of music is just noise, gifts, specifically gifts to do with our mouths here, turn into nothing more than just noise when removed from and not operating out of love. It's just noise, says Paul. But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers... And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Again, the same thing rings true. The same point. He's just using other gifts as an example. You can have great theological insight. You could have great understandings into the mysteries of God. Yet if it is void of love, what good are you? You know, you can know so much about God. It's funny. You can know so much about God, and you can be so unlike Him. You can preach about the love of God, yet you can give no care to being loving yourself. You can understand all the doctrines. All the doctrines. You can understand uh, soteriology, pneumatology, uh, ecclesiology, eschatology, homardiology. Uh, you can know all the five points of Calvinism. Uh, you can even know church history, You can quote the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and not miss a beat. And you could believe all that's written in it with all of your heart. But if you have not love, says Paul, you come to nothing. And it's sad, but once again it's true. There are many seminaries and many churches filled with people with big brains but small hearts. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not disparaging anyone from studying the scriptures and having a good theology we need to have that we're commanded to have that but what i'm saying and what paul is saying is that those whom god has granted a particular gifting in the area of scriptural and theological knowledge they ought to use that gift in love for the as paul says common good of the church the gift is not the problem the problem is the absence of love that's the issue that Paul is addressing here. It's amazing that he says this, because no one had the biblical knowledge that Paul did, save for Jesus Christ himself. Yet Paul's knowledge, if you read the Scriptures, was never without love. It was never without love, was it? The only thing that was greater than Paul's theological understanding was his love for the saints, he always used the knowledge and the revelation that God gave him in the context of love to encourage and to edify the body. And this is, in fact, how all the gifts ought to be used. Spiritual gifts are good, but the spiritual fruit of love is better. Right? That's Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is, number one, love. love. And that fruit of the Spirit is far superior to any gifts. In fact, gifts without the fruit of love come to nothing. It's only in and through love that our gifts become effective. I like what John MacArthur says. He says it this way, quote, it is by walking in the Spirit that we then produce the fruit of the Spirit, in this case, love, by which we can then minister the gifts of the Spirit. By walking in the Spirit, you produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, and only through that love can you then minister the gifts of the Spirit that the Lord has given you. And so love is superior to gifts. But now we transition to another point. Not only are gifts without love useless, but great acts of charity and benevolence, they, they too are useless and indeed meaningless apart from love. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Wow. Now, you may read that and you may say, but, but brother, aren't, aren't those acts, aren't those signs of love, right? Doesn't love display itself in action? And if you said that, yeah, indeed, you would be right. You would be very right in saying that. And we're going to see that love in action in our second point in the upcoming verses. But the truth remains that you can do great things for the wrong reasons, can't you? You could do great, amazing things for the wrong reasons. Reasons having absolutely nothing to do with love. Reasons divorced from love. There are many who may give and give very generously and charitably at that who are not motivated by love at all. You may give much so that you can boast much. Like a fasting Pharisee, you do it to garner attention for yourself. Remember the Pharisees? They would fast and they would look all miserable all the time so people knew they were fasting so they could show how how religious they are, how pious they are. Look at me. Look at me. Look how impoverished I've made myself by my great giving. Look at me. And so you turn your giving into a way of highlighting your great generosity It's like a Pharisee. You may look at such a person and and you may believe upon seeing them that they give out of great love. And you know what? You're right. They do give out of great love, but not love for the people of God. Not love for the people whom they are giving the gift to, but rather love for themselves. You do it for pride. You may also do it, give in order to, to get what you perceive as a better standing before God. Right, as if your giving can set you right before the Almighty. That you may give more in order to get more from God. Right? That's 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 your philosophy. Right? And in fact, that's the philosophy, that's the thinking of the prosperity gospel. That's what the prosperity gospel is built upon. Give not because you love your God and because you love his church, but because God can give you the things you truly love, that promotion that Ferrari in the driveway. And the more you give, then the better your chances of getting it. You may also give like a Pharisee. Pharisees who, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, tithe mint and dill and cumin, but neglect weightier matters of the law, perhaps matters such as love, Beware, because in your great giving, there may be more Pharisee than philanthropist in you yet. No, you see, this is all empty giving. This is all giving that is not motivated by love for the ones whom you are giving to. And because of that, it is worthless. This is not how we as saints are to give, but as saints, we are to give in joy and readiness and most of all, love. And you know who are excellent examples of this from the scriptures? The Macedonians. The Macedonian believers mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They gave generously in order to assist poor saints in Jerusalem. And Paul says this regarding their giving in 2 Corinthians 8. He says that in their abundance of, of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging, earnest, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. You see, the Macedonians, they gave out of love, love for the saints, so much so, in fact, that they begged Paul to let them assist, even though they themselves were in severe affliction and poverty. And that's the right motivation, the motivation of love for the saints of God, and that is how we ought to give. But now Paul is going to take it even further than that, even further. To really hammer home his point, he's going to say the most shocking thing yet. Look again what it says in verse 3. And if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So not, not only is loveless giving worthless, but even loveless sacrifice. Paul is saying that you can go so far as become a martyr. You can go so far as deliver not only your possessions, but your body to be consumed by, father, by, by fire. And even that, even that, if it is not done in love, is worthless. Wow. Even martyrdom. What many consider to be the greatest act of benevolence, the greatest act of faith, is stripped of all meaning and all value if it has not love in it. If it is not saturated in love. Because you can be motivated to become a martyr for all the same wrong reasons we already stated. You know, Christianity has had many martyrs throughout history. Many of the 12 disciples themselves became martyrs for the sake of the gospel. Paul himself would be killed for his faith. And throughout his life, he was ready at all times to give his life up. And it was Paul who, in Acts 21, vehemently stated, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. Paul was ready, always ready, to give up his life. And his motivation was love. Love for Christ and love for Christ's bride, the church. And later in life, he would indeed give his life up. But even that great act, if it be absent of love, says Paul, comes to nothing. You see, love indeed must display itself in works. Don't get that wrong. Don't mistake what I'm saying. In fact, that's so true that love without works is, I would say, not love at all. You can't say that you have love for someone and at the same time remain stagnant. Right? It's like the argument in James. You say you have great faith, but your brother comes to you poverty, You say, go and be well. It's the same thing with love yeah, I love, but you do nothing. Well, that is wrong. But with that being said, the opposite is also true. Just as love apart from works is not really love at all, works apart from love is nothing more than empty religion. Works and love are eternally connected. But you can't put the cart before the horse. Our good works are to stem forth from a heart of love. Now, I could say more regarding this, but I'll summarize verses 1 to 3 by saying this. The greatest display of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers is not found in spiritual gifts, but it is found in the spiritual fruit of love. In fact, so fundamental is that reality that apart from it, the rest is useless, meaningless, as I've repeated many times already, and as Paul does. It doesn't matter how well you speak, how much you know. It doesn't matter how much you give away, even if what you give away is your very life. If it's not done in love, if you do not live a life of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, then it is all worthless. The way that believers are best identified is not gifts and great acts, but it is in our love for one another. Right, it, h- it harkens back to what Jesus said in John chapter 13. In verses 34, 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Spiritual gifts without love, useless. Great works without love, useless we as a church must be a church who loves one another first and foremost and it's by that love that the rest can be employed that we can use our spiritual gifts that we can do great acts but it all comes from the motivation of love that our lord has put within us let's move on to part two love in action so Paul, he's already spoken about the necessity of love, and now he's going to speak of, about what love looks like. Right? He, he's going to speak about love by giving a series of is and is nots, uh, of, of does and does nots. Now, while these uh, verses, they, uh, they appear to be adjectives, uh, they're truly in, in the verbal form. That is to say that what Paul is saying here is that these verses are not so much uh, saying what love is as it is saying what love does. And this makes sense because love is primarily seen in action. In our society, love is most often thought of not as an action, but it's thought of as an emotion. But biblically, that's not the case. Biblically, love is presented as primarily, primarily an act of the will. This is why we're so often commanded in the scriptures, to love. It's not primarily a call to feel a certain way towards an individual, as it is a call to behave a certain way towards an individual, towards, in this context, the church, each other. And so what Paul gives us now is 15 descriptives of love, uh, 15 facets of love, 15 ways that love operates. Uh, Now... What I would like to do is simply go through each of these different descriptives of love uh, uh, because I just believe that's the best approach. And now I realize that each one of these, they could be a sermon in their own right. So I'll have to go through each one very briefly. But before we do, let's just read them all. And it starts in verse 4 of chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So, as we go through this, I'd like to point out one other thing, and that is that Our God perfectly, perfectly fulfills each one of these descriptives, so much so that one preacher pointed out the fact that within these verses, you can replace everywhere where it says love with Jesus, and no truth would be lost. For instance, you could say Jesus is patient, and, and Jesus is kind, and Jesus does not envy or boast and is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on His own way, etc, etc., etc. And this makes sense because after all, according to 1 John chapter four, God is love. And so let's keep that in mind as we go through it. And I would also like each and every one of you as we go through this, and not only keep that in mind, but also to ask yourselves where you stand. Just how loving are you in the face of this text? So firstly, love is patient. Paul says, love is patient. Now, some translations say love is long-suffering, or I like how the KJV says it, love suffereth long. The, The idea here is that love has a long fuse. It is not quick to emotion or anger or agitation. It is to bear long with someone even when they give you full reason not to. Saints, I ask you, does that describe you? How patient are you with one another? And this quality really, uh, it encompasses a lot of the other qualities that Paul is going going to mention here. And it's, it's, it's crucial patience for our relationship within the church because believe it or not, Christians wrong each other. And so what is your response when a fellow brother or sister wrongs you? Are you quick to retaliate? Are you looking to get even? Or are you patient? You wanna know uh, one of the greatest displays of patience that I have witnessed? It was actually very recently. I said before that uh, I just came back from a trip with Henry. Uh, Well, we didn't fly, as I said before, we drove. And uh, we also, because we're men and we like to make our lives more difficult, we didn't stay at hotels. We just like camped in a tent in the Florida, well, not in Florida, but in the South Carolina heat and the Georgia heat, and We were stuck in a small metal box called a car for hours and hours on end a day for a whole week, and Henry did not lose his patience with me, which I believe, honestly, that that is one of the greatest displays of patience in this entire earth. And my family's over there right now, and they're thinking, man, a week? I dealt 22 years with you. But honestly, to me, that is a, a great sign of patience, and I was encouraged by his patience for me because I am not an easy man to live with or deal with for long and extended periods of time, and so I appreciate that, and I find patience to be one of the most uh, godlike traits to possess because our God, indeed, he is a God of Patience. Consider the patience of the Father. Do you not know that the only reason you're alive is because he was and still is patient with you? How often did you transgress his law as an unbeliever? And even as a believer, how often do you fail? And how often do you fall short? Is it just me? Because then I just expose myself. No, it's all of us. And yet your God is patient with you. How patient was our God in the time of Noah. Have you ever read the account of Noah and just thought, man, God, you're patient. Before he brought the flood, how patient is he, now even, in keeping back his judgment. Keeping back his judgment that some might be saved. Our God is slow to anger. He is a patient God, as the Psalms say. And we ought to be patient in dealing with one another. Looking to our God and mimicking that in our lives. Let's go on, we have to be brief, because there's 15. Love is also kind. The idea here is that love seeks to benefit others. Uh, now, the, the, the root of the Greek word here for kind is useful. Uh, this is not so much referring to one's friendly demeanor, friendly attitude, friendly disposition, as it is uh, to referring to seeking someone else's welfare. It is the idea that even when injured and wronged by another, you only seek the welfare of that person. It is to bless when you are cursed. It is a difficult thing, as many of you probably know, to bless those who wrong you. But it is, it is how we are called to love. And as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, amongst ourselves, we ought to always seek the welfare and betterment of one another, even when we have been mistreated. And again, let God be our example. Our God is kind, is he not? Romans 2, 4, and talking about God's patience and his kindness, say this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, kindness and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Our God's kindness spreads not only to us imperfect children, but even to unbelievers. And listen to me, if you hear nothing else that I say, if you are not a Christian here today, I want you to know this. I want you to know that God has been kind with you. He's been kind with you. Well, in what way? Well, in this way, you reject him and you transgress against him, and you disobey him every day, and yet he chooses to lavish you with kindness and with patience. What grace. Scriptures say his rain falls on the just and the unjust. You are an enemy of God, and yet he still allows you to have life and breath and enjoy his creation. You're going to walk out of here, maybe have lunch. You're going to enjoy food. And you have a bed to sleep in and clothes on your back. And you can enjoy the beautiful weather we have outside. And that's all the kindness of God on you. And yet the scripture says that you, if you are not in the fellowship of Christ, are his enemy. But I want you to know that his kindness and his patience is designed to bring you to repentance. It is to allow you the opportunity to turn to him and be saved. And so turn to him and be saved. Do not presume upon his kindness. And his forbearance. What a kind God we serve. Let's go a little faster now. Paul also says that love does not envy and love does not boast. Now these two really go together. And and what you have is really two sides of a coin. And it's not a good coin. It's a coin of selfishness really. Envy in its basic sense is to want what someone has. But there's even a more despicable form of envy. It's it's not only to want what someone else has, but even more than that is to simply hate the good fortune of another. It is to hate that somebody has. Maybe has better than you. I know, there's a story of of St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine, when he was a young man, uh, he uh, lived a very uh, promiscuous life, did many sins, but the sin that really stuck with him was a sin that many of us would consider minor. He stole a a pear from a neighbor's fruit tree. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Why why did that uh, seem to him the most egregious sin? Well, it was because he didn't have a reason for doing it. He didn't want the pear. In fact, he had his own pears on his own tree. But he did it simply because he did not want that man to have. It was envy. It was despicable. To boast, on the other hand, is to desire to elevate yourself, to let others know of your greatness and your glory. But Christianity is a call to humility, not pride. Let's consider our God again. Let's consider Christ. He did not boast, but instead he humbled himself. Christ, the all-powerful, eternal God, humbled himself, the only one who ever had anything to boast about, instead chose to humble himself and take the form of a servant. And if he who had all to boast have humbled himself, surely we who do not can do the same. Just keep going. Love is also not arrogant or rude. Again, love does not consider oneself. It does not elevate itself over others. I I often find that arrogance and rudeness go hand in hand, and the reason we're rude is because we're arrogant. We think we can mistreat others because we're so great, but love is not arrogant, and it is not rude. That is to say that love does not act unbecomingly. It is courteous. It is well-mannered. You know, something I noticed throughout the book of Acts, uh, as I read, is that the apostles never speak rudely to any of the authority figures they confront. Have you ever noticed that? Only once does Paul speak out of line in the book of Acts, and it was towards the high priest. And you know what he did? He immediately confesses his error. Even Christ, when he is before many of his enemies, when he's standing before Pilate being, uh, being condemned unjustly, he's never rude against them. No, love treats others with respect and honor. And if this is how enemies are treated, how shall we treat each other? Shall we treat each other any less? No. Love also does not insist on its own way. Love is meek. It is selfless. Love is willing to sacrifice its own wants and desires. It is humble in thinking of others before it thinks of itself. C.S. Lewis once said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but it is simply thinking of yourself less. And that is exactly what love does. Saints, are you more prone to put yourself before others or do you submit in love and humility? Children can work on this a lot of times. I see children sometimes, it's one child's birthday, and the parents will say, what do you want to do today? It's your special day. And then the sibling comes and says, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. It's not your birthday, it's his birthday. But they insist on their own way. We are not to be like that. We're to submit in meekness and love. Christ did not insist on his own way. When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he declared to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Christ did not insist on his own way, but always submitted himself to the Father's will. Let's keep going. And love is not irritable or resentful. Love doesn't get angry at small annoyances. That's what it means. It goes hand in hand with patience. You are not quick to explode. It takes much to upset you. You're not the type of person, person that others have to walk on eggshells around because you're known to be easily provoked. Are you the kind of person that the slightest remark can set you off? Do you feel they, they, that others must be uh, perfect in your presence or else they may never be forgiven? Christ was not irritable. He was not like this. Even though he was king, he endured he endured beatings and false accusation and being spit upon and disappointment? If he did not lose his temper, are you the kind of person that holds a grudge? Do you have a list of the people you have wronged? Do you keep score? That's not love. Love holds no records of wrong. Love forgives much, forgives from the very heart. And we as Christians forgive. Indeed, we must forgive. We have been forgiven much. We have no right. You have no right church to not forgive your fellow brother and sister in light of how Christ has forgiven you. It's not shall I forgive my brother? You don't have that choice. You have no right. Next, love does not rejoice at wrongdoings but in truth. Church, love is not silent when it sees another brother or sister in sin. Pastor Caleb just preached about the topic of church discipline for the last 2 weeks and One of the reasons we have church discipline simply is because love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love confronts sin. It confronts error. Let me ask you, do you have friends in your life who lovingly rebuke and admonish you when you're heading down the wrong path or who stay silent? When you're not living according to the commands of Scripture, do they point it out in love or do they rather stay silent and happily allow you to march towards destruction? Are you that person? No, a true friend, one who truly loves you, is one who is ready to to wound you if necessary. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Christ didn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but he confronted it head on. And Christ doesn't tolerate lies in his church, but he sent Paul as his servant to teach and to rebuke and to correct the churches when they were in the wrong, like we see here in this epistle. Paul didn't stay silent in the face of sin and false teachers and false teaching but constantly corrected it because he rejoiced in the truth and finally the last four very quickly. We'll bundle them together. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things and it endures all things. Love believes all things and hopes all things is not to say that love is gullible or that love is naive. No, rather it is to say that love is not cynical. Love is not suspicious. Love doesn't assume the worst of people. Uh, And that right there, to assume the worst of people, is a mindset that can destroy the church. It can be lethal. Christians being suspicious and assuming the worst in each other. And when that's paired with gossip, and when that's paired with slander, it's lethal. But love does no such thing, but it assumes the best. It gives the benefit of the doubt. It hopes, even when your brother sins against you. Seventy times seven times. And and when they constantly fail, love does not consider them lost. Paul didn't consider the Corinthian church lost. And Christ, when you fail, doesn't consider you lost. Believes all things and hopes all things. And lastly, it bears and endures all things. Love rolls with the punches. Love is unceasing. It's unrelenting. To bear all things is the idea to cover or protect. It can mean to bear a load. Love covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't seek to expose wrongs in others. Love doesn't just operate when it is comfortable to do so, but when it is uncomfortable, it goes through the trenches with someone. It keeps getting back up. It is to love the unlovable. It is to choose to love despite someone's faults it is a love that endures it is the love of god a love that as the hymn says does not let me go it is the love that god has for his people as described in romans 8 a love that when lavished on a person nothing in all creation can separate it is a love that climbs mountains and descends valleys a love that remains to the very end and that's god love has for his people and it's how we are commanded to love one another. And so, in closing, I'd just like to say this. In writing and preparing this sermon, I was very convict, convicted because I had to ask myself, why was I preaching this message? Was it to present before you uh, all today some, some good quality in myself? Was it for some wrong reason? Was it just so I could get it done? Or was it out of love? And let me tell you, if it wasn't out of love, if it wasn't out of love for my God and it wasn't out of love for all of you as the people of God and the beloved church and bride of Christ, then it has amounted to nothing. If I spoke well, but I get down from here and I love so little, I am nothing. But I do love you all, and it's my earnest desire that Levittown Baptist Church be a church filled with the love of God for one another and that the world may see our love for one another And it be a testimony of the love that God has freely given to all of us. And by this, he be glorified all the more. Amen? Let us pray. Dear Lord, uh, this was uh, a a lot to cover in a very short amount of time. And Lord, I pray that I was faithful in it. And Lord, I pray that these things stick with us and convict us from the heart. May we seek to love each other, Lord as you have loved us. May you constantly be our great example. Lord, we we can't just read these things and and do them by uh, our own strength, but we need to pray on our knees and ask you to help us grow in these things and look to Christ as our example. And I pray that that be the case. I pray that we be a church that loves one another because, Lord, we could do so many things, so many good things, but if we don't love each other and we don't do it out of love, Lord, we're empty and we're nothing. I thank you, Lord, that this is a church that loves one another. And Lord, I pray that this was an encouragement that we do so all the more for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.